1: up on this week's show an unreleased crash versus spyro prototype is found the
2: most bizarre mini arcade yet and we go inside the world
1: of Super Play
3: and n64 magazine with will overton
1: and the retro hour podcast is brought to you each and every friday with our incredible mates at bitmap books now have you seen I'm Too Young to Die, The Ultimate Guide to First-Person Shooters. Now, this incredible book has got a foreword from John Romero, and it details the early experimental years of the first-person shooter, covering more than 180 games. You can check out that book and the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. Hello, and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 398. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the show, the podcast that every single weekend takes you on a nostalgic trip back to the classic age of video games and, of course, brings you up to speed on all the big happenings in the world of retro from over the last week and brings you a veteran of the industry onto the show in the second half to share their story. Now, as I look around my room that I'm in now, you guys know that I've my uh, my garage converted into... where. Uh, what was meant to be a professional studio, you know, for my, my day job and also doing the podcast and videos and stuff as well. Um, originally, it was meant to be just for work. I must admit, one or two retro computers and systems may have found their way accidentally into this room. What, one or two? I'm years. sure
3: you're absolutely <laughs> surrounded by them. And uh, they probably actually take a lot of focus off your work. So maybe you need to find another space that, uh, yeah. you know, is those, free those of moments- retro stuff now.
1: Those are moments to go quiet during the podcast and just having a b- bit of a blast of cannon fodder on my Amiga <laughs> 1200 next to me. Um, but also I look down the bottom shelves here of my uh, my Ikea units, you know, is in a every good retro den. Um, mine's full of magazines because I've told this story before that basically I threw out most of my old gaming mags about five, six years ago. My parents moved house and they were taking up a load of room in the attic. I lived in a flat at the time, didn't have room for them. But recently, whenever we go to retro events, you guys know that that is the one thing I make a beeline for. Normally, our friend Paul Monaghan, he's running a store somewhere selling old gaming mags, and I invariably end up spending about 50 quid on uh, magazines that I threw out about six years ago. I think
3: he's a feverish collector of magazines,
2: <laughs> <is> Paul.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's one word
2: to I, I love last time you bought a big stack, you justified it as research for the podcast. Yeah. And you were like, exactly. it's research, and I'm looking through this, and I'm getting the names of people who made these games to try and look them up now on, on
1: LinkedIn and stuff like that. I was
2: like, that, that's pretty smart, like,
1: but it yeah. cost you a lot of money. <laughs> that's how I sell it to the wife, you know, the reason I need my library here <laughs> in my room. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm like, I've got all copies of Edge Magazine here, Amiga Power, Amiga Format, CEO Amiga, ST User Magazine, load of retro gamer mags. Because to me, I think, you know, us gamers of a certain age, before the internet era, I look forward to buying magazines so much every single month. And, you know, my teenage years, I spent most of my pocket money. It was it was how you
3: got your knowledge. It. You know, yeah. before the internet, you relied on magazines to deliver you the information and also the exclusives. And you could, you know, take them into school and be like, oh, have you seen this in the magazine? And, uh, you know, drool over those screenshots of uh, games that were announced and going to be coming.
1: Yeah, I do remember going on a um, – it was like a school day out. I can't remember where we were going, but we are on a train – and I'm looking down here at my copy of Amiga Format from September 1993, when the CD32 was announced. I remember sharing that with like, all my friends, and we're all kind of drooling over it, you know, in the, in the screenshots on the magazine. Um, but yeah, I mean, so many memories of mags back in the day. And of course, Future Publishing, who made Amiga Format, also they did loads of mags back then, including several console-dedicated mags. Now, if you're a Super Nintendo gamer back in the 90s in Britain, Super Play was an essential purchase back then for any Nintendo fan.
2: Did you get it, Joe? Yeah, man. Um, I mean, obviously I was a little bit younger, but I would always get Superplay, uh, Gamer, N64 magazine. I absolutely loved them. You know, before going to, uh, whenever I was going on holiday, and I remember going to Portugal, uh, it must have been around 2000, 2001, and I remember reading in them all about the GameCube coming. And just being like, mm. oh, my God, look at the graphics on this. And, you know, I, I can't go a week without mentioning Resident Evil. And it had it was covering the, you know, the new Resident Evil remake that was going to be on GameCube. And, you know, the graphics on the N64, and all this kind of stuff. Like, yeah, man, absolutely love it. So nostalgic for it all. Oh. Well,
3: they uh, awesome. particularly stood out as well because they had that like um, manga kind of chibi style yeah. that was done. And that was done by uh, this week's guest, Will Overton. And he did a lot of the cover art for uh, Super Play and it was very interesting because they would focus a lot on that kind of Japanese market mm. and and the American market and bring stuff that we'd not seen like JRPGs um yeah. you know, over over to the kind of British public.
2: Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I always remember, you know, Super Play like having um the Zelda games, you know, Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask on their front yep. covers for a couple of their issues. And they would be the japanese art style and you wouldn't really see that back then you know if mm. if you saw ocarina of time being advertised you would mainly see you would kind of see the, the hand drawn versions of link or, or the screenshots or, that everybody had or the kind Yeah of clips but it would of be, renders. it would be yeah. the western kind of like you know art style and stuff like that whereas there was this whole lover like you say kind of chibi anime style of it and i always remember thinking that's that was really it was odd, and it was interesting. But the only thing I compared the look of it to was that looks a bit like Pokemon kind of thing. But obviously, that's just kind of how it looked in Japan, really. Um, so yeah, really cool and interesting.
1: Well, I guess this week is uh, Will Overton, who, uh, like Ravi mentioned, was basically the, uh, the you know the main illustrator at Super Play. Did those incredible covers, and you're right, because in that era, there were so many gaming mags on the shelf when you walked into you know WH Smith our main news agent here. And really, you needed something that would make you kind of leap off the shelf and make the kids want to buy it. And those covers that he did were just incredible. And it's interesting to hear his story because he kind of fell into it accidentally and was learning as he went along, didn't he?
3: Yeah, so he, he got influenced by manga, but then, He kind of moved through magazines as well. So he went on to N64Mag, which you mentioned. Um, He was on Games Master for a while, uh, Endgamer as well. And then eventually his magazine work led to him working for Rare and Rareware Mm. uh, on uh, Perfect Dark Zero. So it's a really interesting interview because we talk about, you know, concept art for video games as well and how you can go from that kind of illustration background and, you know, get into the industry, which is really fascinating.
1: Yet even hearing how he put them together, because it was quite different to how most illustrators did it back then. You know, again, kind of leaning towards the Japanese influences. So really interesting chat. If you read Superplay or N64 magazine, or of course, you're a big fan of Rare as well, we'll work there. Will Overton, our special guest, he's going to be on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, we did say at the top of the show there, this is episode 398. We're into October now. That means only two episodes to go until our big 400th celebration. Excited, guys?
2: I'm relieved because of, I know we now have a plan in place for it. Yes. And <laughs> also you <laughs> guys- We months
1: ago, Joe. What are you the <laughs> bet? <about? laughs>
2: and you guys scored a really big guest, um, which obviously I'm not going to spoil, but uh, I, I've been poorly, so unfortunately I wasn't on, on the recording of it. But you guys said, uh, described it as the most in-depth interview we've ever done well I, I
3: think this one's gonna actually be a two-parter because yeah. uh this this you know we we don't often do two-parters actually but this interview was just uh so fascinating so i'm really looking forward to that and also dan i think you've you've kind of set something up so people can like leave messages and uh you know we can play them out on the show haven't you
1: yeah, well, I mean, we did this on our 300th episode, you might remember back then. We kind of opened it up to patrons if they wanted to leave a, kind of a voicemail that we could play on the show. This time we thought we'd open it to everybody. So, I mean, if you're a regular listener, we always like getting, you know, listeners on the podcast. So we thought we are going to open up a voicemail line, maybe leave us a little message, let us know where you listen, how long you've been listening, any little message that you want to get on our episode 400 celebrations that are coming up in two weeks' time. And um, I do have a little example if you want to hear kind of the vibe of these.
3: Hello, my name's Marjorie Huffwait and I live opposite Daniel Wood. I would just like to say congratulations on your 400 episodes, but please, please, please stop playing video games into the late hours as my cat Humphrey has got rather an annoying little aggression.
0: (laughs) Oh,
1: it's good to hear Thank Marjorie. You. I'm going to have to take some jam round or something to apologise, yeah. I think, you know, for uh, keeping her up at all hours. Um, but that is the kind of vibe, basically. Um doesn't have to be one of my neighbours, leaving voicemails. But yeah, if you want to uh, just basically leave us a good luck message or uh, anything at all, we're going to pick a bunch of them and play them on our 400th episode that's coming up in two weeks' time. So if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, I will put the link on the front page of our website. Head to theretrohour.com. I'll put it top of the show notes as well in your podcast app. You can click through. I think the service we've got works from, you know, phones and desktops as well. So uh, leaves a little, you know, doesn't have to be too long, 10, 20 seconds. And uh, hopefully we'll play a bunch of those out on the big 400th episode that is coming up in two weeks time. But before that, of course, we have got a week's worth of retro gaming and tech news to bring you up to speed on. And uh, yeah, I was there again Friday morning when the pre-sale got announced, Hit and refresh on my web browser and I have pre-ordered one The Raspberry Pi 5. Another thing to add to your drawer of Raspberry (laughs) Pis.
3: No, this looks absolutely awesome. And, uh, you know, it's been quite a wait for this one. And Eben Upton said it was because he wanted to ensure that, you know, the global chip shortage was kind of over. And uh, it's been four years since the kind of uh, last release. And this just looks absolutely fantastic.
1: Um, How much should it cost you, Dan? I've got a feeling I paid with delivery probably about 64 quid for the pre-order. So 64 pounds, which um, it is more than previous models. I mean, I remember getting the original Raspberry Pi, which I think was about 25 pounds. But obviously we're talking, you know, a decade ago now. And I still think, you know, for the power they've packed into the Raspberry Pi 5, you know, for 60 pounds. Um, and apparently, you know, it's twice as fast as the Pi 4 Model B. So, you know, they're, they're packing a lot of punch in for the price.
3: Yeah, and... Just some of the features. So I'm coming at this from, you know, uh, I didn't really have any like Raspberry Pi 4s. I I only had three. So I've kind of not seen what the major improvements are. But um, seeing that they've got these dual uh, outputs and uh, they're dual kind of video outputs, which is pretty mad because they're at 4K with HDR support as well, which is mm. uh, just pretty amazing. And they've also got the USB-C. Uh, On there, And it looks like the previous version had that, but I love that idea that you can have, you know, the battery pack and attach a Raspberry Pi to that and have it like as a little remote unit as well. But the, uh, the kick as well is uh, pretty mad. It's like a quad core as well at 2.4 gigahertz and uh, 800 megahertz of video core as well. So do you think this is going to be able to handle some more powerful retro systems and emulation?
1: Yeah, which I think for us that's kind of the the main appeal, isn't it, for retro projects? And I think just in terms of the amount of systems that I see these days, and you know, people doing add-ons that require Raspberry Pis. I mean, last week we were talking about that um, that Sinclair Microdrive replacement. That uses three Raspberry Pi zeros inside there, or Picos it might have been actually, just to kind of do all the functions. And I know, being at your Amiga shows before, Revy, the the Robin Hood group that you hosted in Nottingham, uh, I remember one guy popping the lid of his Amiga five hundred and just Raspberry Pis everywhere, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> doing functions in there. So I mean, they're really essential to retro now, I think, aren't they?
3: Yeah, totally. And I just love the kind of idea that you can give this to a kid, and you can turn it into whatever you want. You know, I tried to do a, a NAS. Uh, with a Raspberry Pi and this was like when they weren't very stable Uh, so it's probably the the most unstable NAS you've ever seen because it it just didn't have the kick but uh, with more kick I think there's going to be more projects that you can actually do with it and uh, uh more possibilities like i remember the very first version when you had cody on there and uh i went back and i used that and uh, oh my god it was slow and we just think yeah. this was absolutely <laughs> amazing oh look i can stream video and <laughs> you're sitting there just waiting for the menus to change it was a uh, uh, painful if you go back to it now but just seeing what they can do now and fit into this tiny form factor is insane
1: I remember even kind of the mouse cursor would kind of lag when you dragged it across the screen on the original (laughs) Raspberry Pi. Um, But obviously, they've come on leaps and bounds in the last decade. And I think, you know, in terms of emulation as well, I mean, obviously, this is only in pre-order right now. Um, They're not going to get delivered until the end of this month. So then, I guess, then we'll see the real benchmarks coming out. And obviously, emulators will be optimised for it, I imagine. But I've been looking at a few kind of blogs and stuff and uh, posts on Reddit, people kind of speculating what this system could handle. Because really on my Raspberry Pi 4, um, I've got mine in a monster joystick. Um, And basically I've got um, just basically retro emulators on there. Generally more kind of MAME stuff. So kind of 16-bit era consoles and, uh, you know, arcades from the 80s and early 90s. I've got some PlayStation 1 stuff on there, but I don't really use it all that much for that. I've got a feeling it might be a little bit janky still in parts. But I've been looking at some people kind of speculating on what this could handle. And interestingly, there is an article on T3 where they speculate that this could handle... uh, (laughs) These systems seem quite far apart in my mind. They're saying it should be good for both PlayStation 3... And Sega Saturn emulation. The,
2: the only thing I can think with that, because obviously that's two, three generations apart, you know, kind yeah. of thing. Which a decade just, apart, yeah. And, and a decade apart. It just seems weird. But the only thing I can think of there is the Sega Saturn has really weird architecture. I think it's got... Um, the emulation looks de- quite tough, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I think it's not as developed, the
2: yeah. uh, emulation. So
3: I, yeah. But then also I'm thinking of that era as well. Xbox 360 would be uh, really nice to have in there.
1: Yeah, that would be yeah, really cool. Yeah, I mean, PS3 was, you know, also quite complex architecture. So if you can handle that, I think, you know, for, for 60 quid, if there's a system that can play, like, you know, to so the PlayStation 3 kind of generation. Or Dreamcast even, you know. Yeah, I mean, we should handle that if it can do PS3, I'd imagine. Again, like you said, it depends how kind of developed these emulators are um, and also how optimised they're going to be for the system itself. But I think, yeah, very exciting. Always, you know, whenever a new Raspberry Pi comes out, I'm always first in line. To me, it's a bit like, you know, like Geek Christmas, I'm sleepless the like night before. I'm set my alarm for 6am to be well, first one in day line.
3: I'm going to come to your house and get all your old Raspberry Pis and build some kind of <laughs> mad supercomputer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> i got plenty of them lurking in drawers around the house, Ravi. So, uh, yeah, this, this one would be uh, replacing the four in my uh, monster joystick anyway when it arrives at the end of the month. So I uh, look forward to checking that out. They are available for pre-order now. Now, this is quite an exciting little development. Now, um... You know, we're big fans of Dimitris, the modern vintage gamer, a great YouTube channel, and of course, uh, works for Night Dive Studios as well, the the remaster expert there, Um, limited run games he's worked for as well. So, you know, really interesting YouTube channel that he runs too. And often, one of the things I love about Dimitris' channel is that he covers kind of um, lost prototypes and betas and stuff that never were. And this one is something that I had heard about before, but we've definitely never had quite this close a look at what could have been. Now, this is a a prototype of a racing game that featured both Crash Bandicoot and Spyro the Dragon.
2: I feel like I'm surprised this never came out because Crash Bandicoot and Spyro were kind of like, I'm not sure if they were by the same studio, if they both are Naughty Dog. I think, I can't remember, but there was some crossover with them, you know, in the early 2000s with some Game Boy Advance games and stuff like that. And obviously Crash Team Racing I would probably say is the most successful kart racer other than Mario Kart. You know, like the, the best rip-off of Mario Kart. You know, it did really well on the PS1. So, yeah, it, it's it's kind of like an obvious thing to see that there was going to be a Crash Bandicoot versus Spyro kart racer. But obviously, it never came out. And the reason we're covering this is because, like you say, Dimitri has actually found this on an old Xbox development kit in the hard drive,
1: hasn't he? Um, yeah, which is, I mean, it, it's an insane look at kind of what could have been. I mean, I've looked at Spyro the Dragon was Insomniac game. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, Crash was obviously Naughty Dog. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting that there was going to be this collaboration that apparently would have come out in around 2003, 2004. Yeah. And he's been kind of going through this, um, this Xbox original It was a development system, Mm. and there's a hard drive in there that actually had a few deleted files on there that he's recovered as well. And there have been things on the internet about this game before. Um, Apparently, it was developed by a UK-based company called LT Studios Mm. that were then acquired by Argonaut Software in 2001. And uh, then they they shut the studio down in 2004. So it looks like this was probably one of the last things that they were working on Mm. at the time, LT Studios. And there have been some kind of screenshots of, like, the the title sequence and stuff of the game before, but actually in uh, Dimitri's video, and actually this is something that you can play because he's imaged the hard disk and he's uploaded it so people can download it and play it on your original Xbox hardware or, you know, via emulation. But it is interesting to get a look at the engine of this game because really that's all it is. I mean, it is basically just a player driving around a track, isn't it? Like a nondescript kind of character.
2: Yeah, so the the, the demo was a, I say the demo, the build has got, it's got the entire Intro sequence of kind of like Crash and Spyro, like bashing into just like the video. Yeah, Yeah, the video. uh, um, It's very PS1 considering this was planned for the Xbox, like graphically. Um, But I don't know if it's just just, if it was more a proof of concept because of Crash and Spyro have so many characters in their games. And really, it's just them two with kind of nondescript characters driving around them in the background stuff in the intro. You kind of spot Cortez from. By, uh, Crash Bandicoot and that's it but then the actual build of the game which is fully playable doesn't have any of the characters in it it's just kind of nondescript little like mushroom kind of people driving like they look like Toad from uh, from Mario Kart but they're not they've got like little helmets on and they're just driving around kind of like kind of Crash Bandicoot Spyro the Dragon inspired levels not particularly detailed or anything like that so it looks like it's pretty early on but I've got a feeling it was kind of like they made a bit of a kart racer and then maybe they were like, right, let's try and see if we can get the rights to Crash and Spyro, the more I kind of talk about maybe. it and thinking about it. And they put that clip together and it just never came out, maybe. Like, never, they never got the deal or anything like that, because it seems strange that they've put these, these, just these plain characters in there who aren't Spyro and Crash, but then have the Spyro and Crash video at the start, like 30 second video. It's weird.
1: I mean, there are sound effects in there, like the character. I mean, you said fully playable. It's only one character in the game. There's no like other races or anything. So you can drive around the track basically and see how the engine works. And actually, you know, in terms of the textures and stuff, I think it looks all right. Yeah. Um, But then you've got boxes that you crash through. And there is the sound effect from Crash Bandicoot when he breaks the boxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the original game. So, I mean, that is in there as well. But you're right. I mean, whether it was at the stage where they were just going to kind of approach Naughty Dog... Or Insomniac and say, Look, we've made this. Because, I mean, if, if this was in development from you know to be released in 2003, I've got a feeling from the, the source code in the video said it might have started around 2000. That was straight after the Crash Team Racing game came out in late '99. So, it would have seemed maybe a bit weird to have like a kind of another Crash r- karting game coming out so soon after that. I think,
2: to be fair, I think there was, uh, because there's been a few crash team racing, you know, crash Carting games. Yeah. I, I feel like there was one around then, to be perfectly honest. I could be wrong. It could have been yeah. It could have been a bit later than that, and maybe it was like PS3 or 360. Um, I kind of fell off the radar. Those games did for me around that time. But yeah, I, I mean, like I say, it was around the same time that there was some crossover games for the Game Boy Advance. So it, it would be nice to get like a full story or somebody could come forward and say, you know what? Yeah, I was, I
1: was the person working on this. This is the whole story. But yeah, it well, I just looked it up actually. Yeah, Crash Nitro Kart came out in two thousand three for the PS well, two and Xbox. Yeah. So maybe that was already in development, because mm. I mean that would have muddied the waters a bit, wouldn't it, if two Crash Racing games yeah, came out
2: absolutely in
1: the same year? So maybe that was a reason. But either way, I mean, it's really interesting to see kind of what could have been, and the fact that the the full FMV sequence was fully rendered before the game was even finished. I think is uh, is quite remarkable, and that is you know you can watch the whole thing in the game, and it looks like they spend quite a lot of effort on that by the looks of this.
2: Yeah, like like I say, it's just the background characters seem a bit like, you know, it's not any of the bosses yeah. from the games or anything like that, other than like like I say, I can only spot Cortex, Cortez. So that's what throws me off with it. Like maybe they didn't have the licensing for it yet or anything like that.
1: Yes, but you can play it now. So if you want to kind of have a look at, you know, what could have been that never was, and um, that demo of uh, Crash versus Spyro, the uh, the racing game, is available to download now. So I'll link that up in our show notes and uh, Dimitri's brilliant video as well. Now we do like to cover these uh, mini arcade systems. You know, there are lots of these coming out all the time. Uh, this one, however, is uh, quite a unique <laughs> mini arcade. If you've ever fancied playing Dance Dance Revolution maybe sitting down on your couch and not having to stand up. This could be the game for you.
2: This this has got to be the most bizarre mini console yet, hasn't it? So uh, Dance Dance Revolution, as you guys probably know, and maybe most of our listeners remember, you know, the huge arcade cabinets, which you would uh, dance around on with the arrows and stuff like that. And they were massive, especially the double ones, weren't they? Yeah. Um, 25
1: years old this year, though. Wow. Just- they,
3: they, they were the loudest thing in the arcade. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, the loudest, brightest. You know, yeah. They'd attract attention. And uh, I remember going to Sega World with my dad. And my dad had a full trench coat on, like, you know, a, 90, a 90s Mac style uh, nice. trench coat. Yeah. And he had a huge side bag and also a hat on. And he went on it and like just went mental in the middle of Sega World, and all the kids were like, "Come and look! There's an old man just going mad on DDR." <laughs> it
2: was well funny. That's brilliant. Yeah.
3: Great memory of that. And and yeah, actually, um, I think this is this is interesting because I I would never be a person that would want to sit down and play DDR. You know, I I would always want to stand up and do it as a as a as a physical thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, so yeah, so just to kind of describe it, so it's a one-fifth scale Dance Dance Revolution arcade machine with the double kind of like mats, if you will, you know, like what you would dance around on, you know, platforms. But it is a mini console. It will plug into your TV, and you can play it. And it's got a, it's a, it's got like a, a unique version of Dance Dance Revolution on it, which is based on the first three games. So it's like a best hmm. kind of best of compilation for the songs on there but it's fully playable obviously you can't stand on it because it's kind of like hand size but what what's interesting is the the uh the platforms which you would usually dance around on do unplug and are wired to it and they are your controllers so you also oh, you it. do it with your fingers so you do it like yeah. you know your little <laughs> yeah <laughs> little dancing so, with your fingers yeah. okay so, so it comes away they come away and then you hold it like you would hold like a mega drive controller or whatever and you press up down left right with your thumbs in your fingers or however you want to do it. So you can hold it like a controller. I guess you could place it down and do it with your two fingers if you wanted to.
3: Yeah, that's Um, the way that I do it. It looks like they've got an additional dance mat as well. um, Yeah. In one of the video clips that's on the floor. And I think that is the actual way I'd do do it. I remember for years there was those dance mats you could get that were really cheap. It was just like a sheet of plastic. Yeah. And the amount of injuries that people were just slipping up on those.
2: Yeah, so it is fully playable. Well I, I googled this um, and straight away quite a few like clones came up on Amazon which have been out and stuff like that, but I think they're all like you know they're kind of more display pieces. they don't actually play you know they're not actually mm. a mini console whereas this one is. but interestingly, this hasn't it's actually going to be a crowdfunded thing which starts on October 10th and it's a it's a Japanese one and it's the company's called Zozuki. I believe it is. And they've got, they have got they have got the license from Konami, who was Dance Dance Revolution. So it isn't coming directly from Konami, but it's got Konami's blessings and licensing and stuff like that. And it goes live on it's, October 10th, the Kickstarter does.
3: It's going to be interesting because they're going to have to also have the rights to the decent tunes that everybody remembers. Because mm. I don't know if there's a list of the tunes that are on there, but I'm sure if you're a big DDR fan there were uh, particular ones that you went to uh, just for that. And there were so many versions of it as well. And it looks like you can select through a few different versions of it. So um, hopefully they've got a really good selection on there of like the right tunes. And, you know, as we've seen with other stuff like, um, you know, crazy taxi, they remove the offspring from there and stuff. So I hope that doesn't happen with some of the big, you know, famous tunes that are associated with this.
2: Yeah. I can just imagine my wife, like at a Christmas party or something, like if Dan had this, getting drunk and being like, right, "I'm going to try and stand on it and just completely like <laughs> crumble." <laughs> yeah, just completely
3: crumbles. No matter how good like just dances, I still don't feel as um no. that I'm having as much fun yeah. as I am with stamping on, the, or
1: stamping on the floor aggressively. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah, no, exactly. It's definitely about the the DDR, man.
1: Well, now you can be a real catch potato and just play it with your fingers while you're watching uh,
2: TV. So uh, I just stand on it like- and break it.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it is going to be launched at a Japanese auction website, um, like you said, in a couple of weeks' time. Um, not sure whether we're going to get these over here. I've got a feeling probably not. Mm. But I'm sure there will be some kind of floating on, on, uh, on eBay for extortionate prices <laughs> over the next few months. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that one. Now, speaking of being a catch potato, um, obviously the weather's getting a bit colder now. More time indoors, maybe watching TV series. And uh, there is something that looks pretty decent coming to Netflix, actually. I mean, I say pretty decent, but it does have a lot of potential. We've only got a very short teaser of it at the moment. But it looks like they're doing an animated Tomb Raider series for Netflix.
2: This is quite interesting. So Netflix, they did the, uh, I think they've done three seasons of Castlevania the animated show now mm. um and and then they we've not actually spoke about it but they're now doing another season but it's not the same castlevania it's based on a on uh rondo of blood dracula x so it's a different castlevania story they've moved on from trevor bauman but i said to my missus because there's quite a few of these shows which are coming out on netflix which are all in this kind of anime style but it's it's not japanese anime so it's it's the same kind of style but obviously it's by an american studio which is cool like i'm all for it but they've done like Mm. a spin-off of the pacific rim films with like a series uh they did another one which i can't remember the name of it but it's based on greek mythology but the castlevania one was the first one which was really successful and it was really good and i can't help but think they've invested all this time into like an anime studio and they're just like right we need to get some game and film licenses and just see <laughs> what we can do. But it does look pretty good. Like you it's, say, it's a, it's, it's a very short teaser at the moment. Uh, yeah. So I'm not too sure what the plot's going to be, obviously. I'm assuming it's it not looks,
3: just... It looks to me that it's set in the world of the new Tomb Raider. Do you think? Um, yeah, because she's got the ice axe in there, which oh, is one oh, of yeah. the big features that they have. And, uh, you know the new tomb raider she's kind of a mass murderer and she's like <laughs> yeah. i preferred the old storylines she just um, slaughtered
2: animals <laughs> yeah i enjoyed people. the game
3: but they're also saying you know jonah's in there and a few of the characters from the, the actual game so yeah so it looks like a direct kind of uh, animated version of that like personally i'd like to go old school again but uh maybe they think after the films um you know that area's been covered uh, yeah
2: yeah yeah i guess so i mean um is it is it a a big anniversary of tomb raider at the moment because obviously we're getting the hd collection in early 2024 this just says coming soon so i imagine maybe 2024 we've not got a date on there there was the 25th recently i think 2021 was 25th okay so we're on like 27 years but it's just everything it's very hot at the moment tomb raider isn't it yeah like you know i mean i know the film was a couple of years ago now and the 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 reboot was probably about 10 years ago now in terms of the games, but we've had three, you know, really good games from that as well. But yeah, man, that, um, Tomb Raider just seems to be on the up with everything, but it does look good. I'm definitely going to watch it, you know. she uh, se- Yeah, she seems in it more of the
3: crafting Tomb Raider yeah. uh, uh, than the old school, uh, you know. So yeah, but still interesting and see if they put anything in about the legacy and stuff. And it does look like a kind of Saturday morning cartoon version
2: of like stuff that you used to get you know interesting you you've, you've said that because of these other adaptations that netflix have done you know like with castlevania and stuff like that they have been very violent they've been on the violent side so obviously this trailer this you know teaser doesn't give away whether it's going to be you know she's not like, she's not killed like 50 men in one minute trailer or yeah. anything like that so we won't know just yet so that's that's interesting actually if it's going to be for adults or not
1: but yeah, I think it's awesome. I think, you know, the fact that they're doing Tomb Raider, to me, it just kind of feels like, you know, we're seeing more and more television and movie licenses being based on video games now rather than the other way around. Yeah. It just kind of feels and I, and I think so this one's now. got
3: legs because it's, you know, Tomb Raider. Everyone There's a lot so. of history yeah. that you can add into there. There's a lot of stuff about tribes and, you know, finding these ancient relics and stuff that you could add into a storyline and uh, really, really jazz it up.
1: Yeah, so uh, no word on when it's going to be released yet. Um, they said it could be 2023, um, so maybe in the next couple of months. But, of course, uh, if you want to check that out, I'll put the, the link to the teaser in the show notes along with the rest of the stories as well. Now, um you guys fans of The Smiths? I must admit, you know, I quite like my Manchester music. Probably a bit later, I like, you know, Love New Order and Joy Division and Happy Mondays, that kind of thing. The Smiths may Slightly depressing. Yeah, you're not golf enough. Taste. <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like the Smiths, yeah, yeah. Back in the days. Um, yeah, very good.
1: Well, now the Smiths come to your Commodore 64. Because there is a new video game, the unofficial Smiths text adventure game, and not only for the Commodore 64, but also the the Oric as well.
3: Wow, I didn't know it's out for the Oric as well. This this looks really cool. It's like a little cart. Um they've kind of produced as well which is a a c64 cartridge release uh which is pretty mad and uh, i like this idea because there was a lot of these games on the c64 that were kind of about like band management or having a A rockstar ate my hamster yeah Yeah. (laughs) having a band (laughs) and uh the smiths seem to really fit that era actually uh it's an unofficial title of course it's not uh officially done but um the whole storyline revolves around like the first album and uh, that coming together. And I kind of like the idea of a text adventure around like a, a a really strong album and, uh, you know, a debut and then a suddenly fame. And, uh, it, it does look quite interesting and, uh, it does look very basic as well. Um, the way that it's been done, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's very text with a few images and, uh, uh, black and white as well
1: yeah it's more of a graphical text adventure really isn't it um because yeah by the sounds of the article they're saying it's a straight up text adventure but actually there is some like rudimentary graphics it kind of reminds me of of course the original text adventure games were just literally in you know, a black screen with text on there but then when they became slightly more advanced you have uh, kind of the, the top area of the screen that has some like very basic images on there um that kind of goes along with the story as well and there is um quite a nice little rendition of the Smiths in the, the intro, introduction as well. There's kind of <laughs> like a, a digitised image of them. A
3: SID yeah. version. Yeah, I can imagine.
1: <laughs> yeah, quite a quirky little crossover. So if you want to get that, um, the ROM is available to download for free. So I'll put that in our show notes. And all the rest of the stories, you don't have to Google around. i save you the effort. Head to the retrohour.com. Now, this week's special guest, Will Overton, talking about Superplay, N64 magazine as well, and his time at Rare. He'll be coming up on the show in just a moment. Before we do that, Let's take a second to give a massive thank you to this week's sponsor, and it is our wonderful friends at ExpressVPN. Now, without dropping you guys in it too much, can you think of a time that you've uh, searched for something on the internet, Joe, that you didn't want anyone else to know about? Last (laughs) night. Thanks, Ravi. Well, there are legitimate times, and I mean, you know, it could be, for example, you know, not the thing our mind's going straight to. It could be maybe you're going to propose to your other half, and you're searching for engagement rings. And you don't want anyone to know. Maybe you're, you're putting together a, maybe you're doing a business plan. You're putting that together and you want to keep that to yourself. There are a lot of times when you might want to browse privately and you might be thinking, oh, well, let's use incognito mode on Chrome. Now, there's a lot of downsides to that incognito mode doesn't actually hide your activity. So no matter what mode you're using on your browser, how many times you clear your browsing history, the thing is your ISP can still see everything you do, every single website that you visit. So the good thing is having a service like ExpressVPN means that is hidden from them. And I think even in terms of targeted advertising, Ravi, I think, you know, having ExpressVPN installed, even from that aspect of not having all your personal data sold to ad agencies that's a big benefit for you as well isn't it
3: yeah it's like you know sometimes you buy something online like paving slabs and then it's like do you want paving slabs and it's like no yeah. just stop and it's it's good to kind of hide that information away just so you're not getting kind of harassed but um the ease of use of express vpn is it's just fantastic like i have it so it's on my computer when I start up straight away It goes into ExpressVPN, but also you can get it on your phones and now even your smart TV, which is pretty yeah. cool. So when, when you're online and, you know, some TVs actually send reports back about what you're watching. So uh, I think that's absolutely fantastic.
1: And even in America, it's legal for ISPs to sell your information to advertising companies and agencies. I mean, having ExpressVPN on there, that means they can't see what you're doing. And it reroutes all your internet traffic via their secure servers so your ISP can't snoop on the sites that you're visiting and encrypts 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. And like you said, Ravi, one click, you're online. Really quick. I mean, if you're watching video and stuff, no lag, no buffering, nothing like that. Get yourself protected on all your devices. No excuse not to be using ExpressVPN, really. So if you like to try it out and protect your privacy today with the VPN that's rated number one by Business Insider and the VPN that we use. We have got you an exclusive link so you can get three months of ExpressVPN for free on top of a one-year package. So head to our link and that will really help us out. You know, let them know that we sent you there. Helps the podcast out. ExpressVPN.com slash retro. ExpressVPN.com slash retro. And a big thank you to our friends at ExpressVPN for their continued support of our show. So a little reminder, episode 400 is coming up in two weeks' time. If you have got a spare minute and you can leave us a little voicemail, we'd love to get as many of those as possible uh, that we can play out on the 400th episode in a couple of weeks. So the link to the voicemail page will be at the top of the show notes or head to our website at theretrohour.com. And next, going inside the world of Superplay magazine, Gamer, N64 and Rare, with this week's special guest, Will Overton, is next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest, and uh, so honoured to be joined by our guest this week. who's worked on some incredible games for incredible companies like Rare, of course, and if you read Nintendo magazines back in the day, you'll be more than familiar with his work. Illustrator the likes of N64 magazine, Gamer, and of course, the legendary Superplay magazine. Welcome to the show, Will Overton. How's it going, Will? It's going okay, Really appreciate you taking the time to uh, do some reminiscing with us this week. Now, before we get into uh, kind of all these incredible titles and companies that you've worked for, we always like to kind of wind it back to day one with our guests and find out where it all began. I mean, do you remember what initially got you interested in video games in the first place? Where did it all begin for you? Because I am incredibly ancient and old, it started when they
4: started, basically. Used to go on holiday They'd be like really basic arcade games, mid-70s, all the older black and white Atari stuff, Invaders in 78 by the time we got over here. And um, it's just all carried on since then, up to the micro years, you now Spectrum, Commodore 64, up through to the Amiga, and then eventually on to the consoles once I saw Japanese stuff really came through. So I made the leap over to, I, mean, I was basically in Nintendo head, but even though I would still play all the other stuff as well. So it didn't really matter where it came from. I just enjoyed playing the game. So really, all, it's always been there since day one.
3: I was wondering, were you into like illustration and graphic novels and comics and stuff? I was then?
4: always into comics as a kid. Marvel was my big thing. I think the first Marvel comic was when I was about, boy, oh, it must have been really early 70s. They used to do like weekly black and white versions of the US comics so we used to get like two or three different, um, or three or four, vastly shortened sort of excerpts, and they would it'd be like an anthology comic basically. And there would there would be quite a few of those from um, from Marvel in the seventies. And so I started out on that, and uh, I always wanted to be a Marvel artist. That was my thing when I was a kid. Always wanted to be a Marvel artist, but I was I was never never good enough to do it. Um. But uh, yeah, and that sort of led, you know, the, the comics led into, from Marvel into other sort of comics, sort of European comics, sort of like Mobius and stuff like that. And um it's just always been with me, even though I'm sort of ancient old, I still like all of that stuff I never sort of grew out of it really. And uh, I don't know, the sort of, the games, it was a, I wouldn't say it was, obviously it didn't come from comics, but it was a natural, it was a natural progression. It was pop culture. So it was a natural progression to sort of go into all of that sort of thing as well. So, yeah, always been interested. I've never grown out of anything. That's the trouble.
3: So it, it was <laughs> that kind of American style that you were originally going for? Would like I magazine. don't think it
4: was any style, really. I mean, that's what we had. I mean, obviously we had sort of the funnies. We had the Beano and, you know, Wizard and Chips and all of that sort of stuff. And then we had the War Comics. You saw know, sort of Commandos and then 2000 AD. So it was it was everything. I just wanted to be good at it. But it was, you know, no internet. There was there was nobody teaching anything like that. You know that style. It was really a case of you had to sort of, you know, copy and just try and get better on your own. And uh, I don't know. I just, I mean, I still can't draw in that style. I really that sort of Marvel style. I've always sort of tried, but you know, it just it's just not me. So i was, ended up sort of like appropriating lots of different bits. Maybe maybe a bit from that. Maybe a bit from the Japanese stuff I've sort of mixed and matched and ended up with my own theme. so
1: what got you interested in like Japanese style as well? So, I mean, I remember obviously Akira coming along in the eighties and that was massive. But before that, it felt like like manga and anime were a bit kind of niche in the UK. And they sort of that. they were. I mean, in in um, I can almost
4: tell you where it sort of started really. So after I left college, sort of early sort of eighties, age three, age four, I got a job in uh, in London working for a little design studio, doing sort of graphic design. That's what I'd done at the local college. And um, I sort of basically, I you know, it was the first time I was in London, I was working in the West End. So I was going visiting all the little comic shops and stuff like that. And there was all, in Forbidden Planet, there was, and it hadn't been open all that long, but it was, they had a little section just for Japanese import stuff. And they'd get yeah, like a few copies of this, you know, this magazine, that magazine, you know, that sort of covered anime Japanese magazines. And I noticed that. And then I found a couple of Japanese bookshops in London as well. And they just had an explosion of stuff. They had games magazines, they had anime magazines, they had stats of manga. They even rented out VHS tapes of stuff, which was obviously for the local sort of Japanese community. But you could go and you could rent out tapes. And that was sort of the start of it. And then there was a, a slowly there was sort of stuff coming through, sort of stuff dubbed into English. The the one that people might know, it was like the very first sort of Studio Ghibli, before they even were Studio Ghibli, was a a film called Nausicaa, And Hmm. um, there was a dubbed English version of that called The Warriors of the Wind. And I found a copy of that tape in my local Smiths the VHS of that, and at the same time, I found the Japanese art book of it at one of the Japanese bookshops, and it was like a, you know, it was like, oh my God, it's like cartoons, you know, that you'd watch on telly, but really well drawn. You know, it was like a step up. It was a level up to the stuff we'd been watching on TV, even though, unbeknownst to me, I'd already been watching some Japanese stuff in uh, Battle of the Planets and mm. sort of some other stuff like that, which was, you know, we didn't know it at the time, but it was anti money. So it was just a sort of, uh, as it sort of slowly filtered over into this country, I was in the right place. I had the right sort of, you know, I had enough money to buy the stuff and get involved in it and get in, get interested in it. And just sort of one thing led to the other, and one thing led to, you know, finding someone else who found it, you know, he found it interesting, and it just sort of snowballed from there. And it and it kind of
3: massively differed from you know like Bob Wakelin stuff or Oliver Frey. You know it had a a, a very different kind of distant land uh, kind of style. Yeah, because it had
4: you... that exo- exotic sort of yeah. tinge to it as
3: well. You know, it was it's kind um, of unknown as well. It was. Uh, it, yeah, it, it seemed like a bit cult like back then.
4: It, well, I mean, it was extremely cult. I mean, about, by the time that I sort of found. Other people, you know, locally who were into it, it was um, the the, big, the best thing you could buy was a VHS recorder that would play NTSC tapes, because you know you everybody was swapping these tapes. You couldn't buy any discs yet. You couldn't buy any VHS yet. Manga video wasn't a thing yet, so everybody was exchanging these sort of like copied five, six, seven, eight, nine times over sort of VHS tapes to watch this bizarre stuff you know you just edit you'd watch anything there was no you know oh, i don't like this sort of thing oh, i don't like that sort of thing you just watch anything because it was so new it was so different
3: i was wondering did you get into the gaming then as well and did you have any like you know import consoles or or any like gray market uh,
4: yeah i mean, late 80s uh that would have been the amiga time, So i would have had the amiga then obviously when i was working in london at the time and of course Tottenham Court Road at that time was just a sea of electronic shops.
3: Oh, it's amazing. All,
4: yeah. you know, and and once the sort of Japanese stuff, once, not Famicom so much, but once the Game Boy hit, PC Engine, Mega Drive, and then obviously eventually the, the Super Famicom. Um, so I had a sort of import Game Boy. That was the day it sort of came out. So that was in 89. That was at the end of 89. And then... Uh, Super Famicom, as soon as that came out, sort of 1990, and it just sort of snowballed from there.
1: Well, obviously, the Super Nintendo became a huge hit when that was released in the UK, and uh, Future Publishing, who were always at the forefront of releasing magazines for new systems back then. I mean, obviously, the Amiga magazines were big. Atari magazines they did were massive. And uh, then Super Play magazine came along, the independent Super Nintendo magazine, in 1992. So... What was the story there? How did you get involved with Future Publishing and get to work on Superplay? Okay, so 1991, 92, that was just so
4: Superplay came out in 92. So about 1991, I was working in London and a group of friends who I'd met up, sort of anime-loving friends, had started a fanzine called Anime UK. It was a lady called uh, Helen McCarthy, and um, she sort of organized meetings at her house. We would watch loads of stuff. We would all meet up and she would run. She was making this little fanzine back and white to copy all that sort of thing. And I was working at this design studio and I said to her, would not it be good if we could sort of make it a bit more pro? And my boss at the time, he saw that I was getting into all this sort of stuff. And he said, you know, he said, well, I'll tell you what, he said, if you design it, and Helen and whoever writes it, we will get it printed. We'll get a proper magazine printed and we'll see if we can sell some. So we started our Anime UK magazine and um, we had done, oh, I don't know, probably about four or five issues by then. We were sort of taking them down to Forbidden Planet and selling them mail order. And we, we did even get into Smith's for, for a while. And um, it was Matt Bilby who was, they're going to be the launch editor of super play he was looking for an angle and he liked the idea of all the sort of japanese stuff coming out because the magazine was coming out sort of like the games were coming out long before they came out in the uk so he thought if we had the japanese angle we could review all these japanese imports and do all this japanese news and it wouldn't seem odd shoehorned into a uk magazine so he'd found a copy of Anima UK because I did covers and I did sort of design inside and stuff. And he said, do a fancy doing an illustration for their new magazine. So I did issue one. That guy was still freelancing then; I wasn't working for a future. So um did that for him. It seemed to go okay. He came back the next month and said, yeah, can you do another one? So I did another one and then I ended up just doing them all. And about a year later, he said, well, you know, you might as well just come down and work on the magazine. You could be a designer on the magazine still do the colours. I was sort of well into the Super Famicom sort of scene at that point anyway, so it seemed a sort of a natural fit. So I packed bags and went to, went to Bath. That, that was the start of it, really. The legendary Monmouth Street. The legendary Monmouth Street, yes. Yeah, we moved around a bit because at that point future's Obviously, they were all in different buildings dotted about the town centre. But Monmouth Street was sort of the main one. Actually, saw it up for sale the other the other month. You could you could buy it for sort of I don't know, eight hundred grand or something.
1: Yeah, that was quite funny to see. I saw a lot of uh, ex journalists commenting on that, saying it hasn't changed a bit since uh, thirty years ago when they were there.
4: It was bizarre because it was just like lots of little cramped rooms, obviously so far from being suitable for multiple teams doing all that sort of work, but they just sort of crammed everybody in there. So, you know, it's, it's bizarre. But we moved about different buildings. By the time we were in uh, N64 Magazine, we were a bit, bit further down the street in another building. But uh, yeah, it was good. It was good. Everybody was it was a very young company. So everybody was sort of quite quite young and quite eager to do it. So it was, it was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of a hustle and bustle. So it was, it was a good place to work.
1: I was going to ask what the culture was like there. I mean, was there a lot of kind of, uh, you know, work hard, play hard kind of going yeah, on Yeah, my, my
4: least favourite uh, saying, I must admit. But it, it was a <laughs> bit like that. It was lots of young, single people. So it would be a culture of, you know, you work, work a bit later, go to the pub, you know, come back a bit later, do some more. That sort of thing. and. I was actually married by that time. So it was a bit it can be a bit awkward because it's like if you've got a partner who's not actually working at the company, it can be a bit, you know, well, I've got to go home really. You know, I can't mm. just go straight from work down the pile and work all hours to get this thing done. But you know, we made it work in the end. It was it was fine. It was fine. But yeah, it was a very young company. It's a bit like a lot of Lots games companies or a lot of games companies yeah. as they were sort of a bit a bit older i mean, most most people now have it's, it's a bit different people have grown up in games companies so they're married they've got partners but um back when i like joined rare it was a it was the same sort of thing there was a lot of young people there um didn't have partners worked all hours just to get the thing done it was very much he lived for the work
1: i'm quite interested to hear about nintendo's attitude as well too. Super Play? Because obviously they had Nintendo Power in America that was like an official Nintendo of America magazine, but obviously Super Play being an independent mag. I mean, what was kind of Nintendo's attitude towards it?
4: As far as I know, it was fine. I mean, as far as Super Play goes, don't ever remember ever being told that Nintendo didn't want you to cover something because it wasn't going to be out in the UK for another six months. It was just, we just did it. I mean, obviously, they already had the um, the official Nintendo magazine or Nintendo magazine system with um, EMAP, and um, they they were a lot more constricted, I'd imagine, by what they could cover and what they couldn't cover. But it never seemed to affect us. I mean, even when we when we moved to N64 magazine, and don't I mean, we had quite a good relationship with Nintendo at that point. You know, we'd be invited on press trips and bits and pieces. So no one seemed to mind. I guess it was all. It was all advertising for who for it. it was all in generating excitement. How, how did you
3: get the games early? Then were you like I remember Special Reserve used to do a, a kind of uh, grey import service as well, and uh, I was wondering were there any like British companies that you were you know working with or had like a a contract with to get some of the early titles in? And it wasn't really the, a uh, contract. I mean,
4: as far as sort of Super Playboars, most of the import stuff came from somebody who was in Japan. There was a couple of writers who I think they freelanced for Edge as well as for, you know, in general sort of future. And they would literally go and buy copies and ship them over. And then when we got to um, N64, you know, you used to get all those sort of classified ads in the back of the magazines for, you know, by Street Fighter 2 for some ridiculous amount of money. So we would sort of, get them either to lend us the games or send, you know, send us a game for and then to lend and we'd give them a credit in the reuse saying, you know, the cart was provided by Blood Bloods. Sort of, or we would literally buy them. So, um, yeah, there was like two two or three different ones where uh, we would get games from each month.
1: And did you have any Japanese translators on your staff? So imagine, you know, when you get getting <laughs> imports, yeah, trying to not, understand not them.
4: On, not on the staff. I mean, we, <laughs> I think uh, in Superplay... The the guy the, the the people who are in Japan, the guys who would send the stuff over, they would translate stuff. So you would get like a copy of Famitsu, weekly Famitsu, the big the biggest games magazine in Japan, I guess. We'd get copies of that over and then we would sort of ring bits and pieces. So you could look you know, and fax it back and say, Look, can you just translate this bit? This little bit looks interesting. You now this bit's obviously talking about, you know, some a new Mario game or was a new Zelda or something, you know, can we can we see what that is in we would try and pull, you know, and make a new story out of that. By the time we got to N64, there wasn't as much of that going on. It was, it wasn't as much of an import magazine. And um, but there, I do remember times when we would literally, you know, pay a translator to translate something. We'd get a magazine in you know, or press release or something, and then it would be a literary case, you know, Pay them to translate a whole piece, and then we would pull out relevant quotes and bits and pieces and make a new story up out of that. It always seemed to work you know just it was just a case of muddling through really I mean without the net it was impossible to keep a, a massive eye on everything that was going on so yeah. you know you would get a few magazines in see what was see what were the big news stories that the Japanese were covering and just try and work from that so well this is obviously a big game coming out this is a big thing this is by x company this is by y company by y developer x developer you know, we'll buy that one in, we'll get that one in, that will be a review. And then we would try and find stuff to sort of like, you know, around that. It it, worked, it just worked.
1: Well, obviously, I mean, your cover art really made Superplay jump off the shelves when you saw a copy of it in WH Smith, you know, incredible. And, uh, obviously still talked about to this day. I know you, you go around doing you know the retro events. You've been out with a Ravi in, in Norway recently as well. I mean, what was kind of your approach to doing the covers for Superplay and how did you make sure that they kind of leapt out on the shelf when you saw them amongst all the other magazines in, in a newsagent? It was,
4: it was weird because at that point, even though I was doing Anime UK magazine and doing covers for that, I wasn't what I would call an illustrator. I wasn't employed as an illustrator. Most of the work was designing magazines, graphic design, layout, and stuff like that. So it was a bit of a, you know, it was like, wow, you know, they're asking me to do a magazine cover that goes on the newsstands every month. But really, I was learning or was trying to learn how to be an illustrator because I had no frame of reference i mean how big do i do it how you know what do i do how do i supply the artwork you know in those days people who would paint a picture you remember games master used to have fantastic painted covers um, by a a guy called uh, paul kidby and he would you know that would be on like board illustration board And the way they would have to scan it for the magazine was they'd have to strip the top layer off the board, hoping not to break the artwork, and they would wrap it around a drum, and that drum would scan the image in really high res. And it was like, I didn't know any of that. I didn't know how they did that at all. in the end, because I was trying to sort of emulate that cartoon style, I thought, well, I I might as well just paint them like a cartoon cell, you know, like on a clear acetate, where you have the line work on the top and you have the colours sort of painted on the back. And I I thought, well, you know, to try and make it look as much as like that as possible. And it seemed to me that that was how the all the Japanese anime magazines, their sort of main feature artwork seemed to be a cell painting, an animation cell painting. It wasn't really done any other way. So I just tried to do it like that. But the thing was, I was thinking... Well, how, you know, I need to do it a bit bigger than normal because, you know, when you you sort of like you do a piece of artwork that's big and then once it gets shrunk down to the magazine's cover size, everything sort of tightens up a bit and looks a bit better. But I ended up doing the massive, I had like sort of A2 cell paintings, which is massive for a cell painting. I can't believe anybody ever does them that size. The amount of paint I would go through was ridiculous. So it was all a learning curve. And, it was just the fact that each month it would be, you know, I'd get a call on, you know, whatever, and they'd say, oh, you know, we're going to do, I don't know, Adam's Family Values. That's not a Japanese game. But yeah, you know, yeah, we still want you to do that in the Superplay style as it was becoming. And so I had to try and do that as if I was drawing a Japanese-style picture it was just it was learning on the job it really was you know and it was like oh my god i have never drawn anything like this before and that before but now i've got to try and work out to see if i can do it so i was not a professional illustrator i was not a seasoned illustrator not like somebody like holly Frey, who'd been doing it for you know decades before you know crash and zap came along he was a professional illustrator that I'm, I, I wasn't by any stretch of imagination. Some people may well say I'm still not now, but um,
1: yeah, it was
4: just a case of, of once I got that cell style I sort of knew what I was doing, and each time because they were asking me to change the style each month, I could sort of perfect mm. it and try and get it a bit better each month, get the technique a bit better. Who else gets that sort of opportunity, really? You know, it's just like, yeah, you can do the cover every month, and just keep on doing them. It's crazy.
3: I think it's uh, really interesting that kind of you guys were covering the other markets as well. Um, do you think the British market kind of got a bit ignored a bit uh, by Nintendo or just, you know, some of the releases uh, uh, weren't as good?
4: I think as far as Nintendo was concerned, it was a slow burn, wasn't it? I mean, you know, Europe and it was really America was where the focus was. America, was well, Japan first and then America second. And um, we did get a bit of sort short shrift for a a lot of years um i mean it's it's far far better than it you know now now we get simultaneous worldwide releases in all territories but then you know i'm sure anybody who remembers super play can remember titles that you know we literally just didn't get super mario rpg you know final fantasies and stuff like that we just didn't we just you know no we're not not going to release them in your in your country and then there was the speed thing as well where the, the consoles would literally run slower because of the, you know, the, the the telly refresh rate and stuff. So, yeah, there was a lot of, not, not so much barriers, but there, there could be a lot of downsides to it. Then I, you know, it was just something that we had to wait for them to get better at.
3: Yeah. Well, you mentioned some, uh, RPGs there as well. And do you think, you know, uh, jrpgs it was a category that wasn't huge and now you know there's a lot of focus on it in the uk Uh, do you think superplay really helped with that i like to
4: think it helped in that first instance i mean the the, even even for japan the games were pretty that style of game was pretty new i mean even though it had gone back to sort of the Famicom days that was really only i don't know was it even sort of eight nine years previous it wasn't like super established so each, each game that was coming out was, you know, a, a bigger and better, you know, game and it was, well, but we have never seen anything like that in the UK, not that style of game. I mean, you know, our whole our role-playing games, when we think of role-playing games, it's very different from that. It's not all that described story where, you know, certain events happen at certain times and basically you're playing through a story. Um... So it was very different, and I you know I loved it. I, I loved it because it was so different. Um, now, of course, there are gazillions of them, and you know all different sort of styles and you know the way the sort of gameplay mechanics that they use. They, there is still that sort of you can still play through that sort of very traditional. In Dragon Quest, is probably the, the best example because it's the one that sort of probably stayed the closest to its roots all the way along. But you know now they've branched out into all sorts of different different things i mean you know the, the final fantasy the remakes uh, the remake of seven is you know light years ahead of what it was back on the super famicom so or it was a uh, playstation rather so yeah i mean I, I think it's just like anything isn't it i mean if something new comes out it's brilliant it's fresh it's new everybody loves it you know or, or rather like a core like it at the beginning i mean gradually you know if those, that style of the game carries on it will just spread out i mean it's like anime you know, in the, in the ni- early 90s, there was like a handful of people who even knew about this stuff. Now, of course, it's on every street corner. I went into Morrison's the other day and it was a green I mean, colouring book, you know, on the
1: newsstand next to take a break or something. It was absolutely ridiculous. Who would have sold it? Well, you know, think of these, like the big Japanese companies, I mean, did companies like, uh, you know, Konami have an interest in Superplay? Were, were you like on their radar at the time? I don't
4: remember if Konami actually had a, PR presence in the UK at that point. But um, most of the stuff that Superplay got was off its own back. I mean, a bit later on, into towards the end of the run, there we would get PR people come in and, you know, demo a game. they do the usual round of all the mags. They would bring in, you know, demo it, take you out for a pizza lunch, and hopefully get a good review at the end of it. But the big sort of Japanese games... I'd be very rarely got anything like that. It was only until sort of the N64 days when we finally got sort of PR stuff from Nintendo. I mean, I I remember, I mean, my best one was that uh, I went to um, this sort of living medieval museum just outside Frankfurt to play uh, Ocarina of Time. Um, I drew the straw to get to go on that, that sort of trip. And it was like, yeah, I'd put you up in a hotel and we'd take you out for dinner and then, you know, you get a day and you can play this, play this, you know, as much as you could get through in, in the day. And uh, you had a, you know, a disc to take grabs and all that sort of thing. But uh, that sort of thing never happened in the Superplay days. We never get anything like that. It was all, all off our own back, really.
3: Do you think um, Superplay helped with the success of Final Fantasy Seven? Because uh, I know they switched system, but there was a, a lot of coverage of uh, final fantasy and final fantasy seven as well.
4: Well, I originally thought that it was going to be, well, it was going to be for the CD add on for the, for the yeah, Super yeah. Famicom. So I remember us, we did cover that a bit. I remember there was a, there was like, well it must've been about four tiny little pictures that we'd found in a magazine. And I think they went around all the magazines. Uh, hey, there's going to be this sort of radical news. or so they're going to be 3d you know, what have you. And, uh, it never happened.
1: So Do you remember kind of getting excited about the fact that they might might have done a CD add-on for the Super Nintendo? Obviously they were working with uh you know we found out Sony later behind yeah. closed doors. I mean, do you remember much of that kind of hype? Uh
4: to be honest, I don't remember a lot of hype about that. I think it was just well, the possibilities there, but we didn't we'd never seen any game. There was nothing running. You couldn't see anything, you know, there was a couple of, like I say, tiny screenshots for things in a in a Japanese magazine. But there was nothing to really get hyped about. So I, I personally, I, I don't remember there being much much hype for it. If it had gone down that route, we probably wouldn't have gotten the PlayStation. I yeah. mean, that's probably got to be the biggest sort of fork in the road to what, what would have been. I,
3: I was wondering, did you get any kind of interaction from the American audience at all? Because I know a lot of people were actually importing uh, Super Play I well, don't remember uh, anything uh, actually. I don't
4: remember. I mean, you know, quite possibly there would have been, there would have been letters or something coming from from overseas, but I don't. I don't really remember anything. But like I say, it's, it's it's hard to imagine. You know, no internet. That the the world was a lot smaller or was a lot larger. Really, I guess, um, in that you know you couldn't just immediately get in touch with someone. You know, they couldn't just send you an email and say, "Hey, can I get this magazine over here?" You know, can I? You know, and you could look it up, and you could look up on Barnes and Noble website and say, "Hey, you know, if you go to a big city, you might be able to get, a, you know, get a copy." Like most UK magazines, and then if you go to the states, you could normally find, you know, copies of State by Retro Gamer in in New York mm. now if you went to a big bookstore. But um, over then, I mean, the thing was also, I mean, you know, on. I, I've, I've done a little bit of writing here and there, but I'm not a writer and I wasn't a magazine writer. So all of that stuff probably, you know, if it did go on, it probably didn't filter down to down to the crayons at the back of the room because normally those sorts of people, they don't really have much input into the magazine as a whole. You know, you're, you're sort of told, you know, these are the games we're going to review. Look, so-and-so has written X number of words taken all these grabs it's the lead feature blah blah blah, and you go away and you design it and you know you've got your templates you know or you know you're doing something special with it this time but you're not really involved in the editorial but because I was a nosy parker and I was into the games as well then I sort of got more involved and and ended up sort of doing bits of writing here like I say sort of here and there But yeah, I guess if people did get in touch and stuff, it might, it might well have happened, but it didn't sort of filter down to me.
3: I was wondering, did you get any feedback from, um, you know, Japanese artists? I can imagine, you know, doing something that's not initially from your culture and then putting it out. um...
4: I remember, I remember one, um, I remember, um, I think it was Jason, Jason Brooks on Edge. He was editor of Edge at the time and he'd got this Japanese magazine and there was a, a picture of, super play and it was it was quite an early one and it was like a a picture i think it was like an rpg sort of just a general thing about rpgs and so they'd asked me to draw this sort of draw this sort of dragon questy character but not dragon quest just make something up i'm sure they said it's just make up this sort of character Uh, so it's it's sort of a i don't know it's i can't even remember what issue number it is It's an early one but it's big head and he's got sort of a sword and what have you. And um, they, they printed this picture of this cover and we had it translated and it said, you know, oh, look, you know, they, they, they like Japanese games, it's really good and everything, but we have no idea who this character is meant to be, is it meant to be Sansa? They're meant to be Sansa. <laughs> they had no idea, but they didn't say, oh my goodness, it was awful. You know, it didn't look anything like it should be. So um, no, I haven't really had anything like that. But yeah, I, I can't say we've had any really, big contact with any sort of Japanese illustrators.
0: Yeah. It was a good
4: thing they stayed away, really, because they were going to run rings around me if they'd actually got so many Japanese, a proper <laughs> Japanese illustrator to come and do it. They'd have been out of a jol.
1: Well, obviously Superplay, I think it went on until about 1996, but we had the, you know, the Nintendo 64 slash Ultra 64, it was known then, kind of on the horizon for a long time. I mean, you know, it was delayed and delayed and delayed. What do you remember about the, the end of Superplay magazine? Do you remember when you guys were all kind of told that it was wrapping up? Yeah, I do. It was, it was, That was quite sad actually because I was,
4: I was sort of quite keen that it could sort of carry on a bit longer. I thought we could probably eke it, eke it out. Maybe maybe that was a good idea. Maybe it wasn't a good idea. I mean, I know, I think we've all seen some magazines that are kept on too long and they end up like a sort of pamphlet almost. Yeah. There was, there was a lot of those in the nineties. So, yeah, they just said, you know, this is going to be, you know, you got like two more issues and then that's, that's going to be it. And, um, I was actually moved off of it before the last issue and I was moved on to Games Master and, uh, I did, well, you want to move to Games Master. I mean, you know, everybody who worked on it was great, but it wasn't my sort of magazine. And, um uh, the idea of doing an N64 magazine wasn't even raised at that point. And so I stayed on Games Master for I don't know, six months, six months, eight months. And then I think eventually they, they said, they begrudgingly let us do a, a, um, an N64 magazine. I think it was Jonathan Davis, actually. He was the one who really spearheaded that. He really sort of pushed for them to do it. They weren't that interested in it because they'd got official PlayStation by then. And official PlayStation was like the poster boy of the magazines, the games mags in the company. And so all the attention and effort was focused on that. You know, out had a cover disc and it was going great guns. And uh, N64 was sort of seen as a, I don't even know they thought so it was going to do that well. But in the end, they they let us do it. Um, and the good thing was they let us do it without much fiddling and much intervention. I think we had one meeting with the guy who was then head of art and head of the design and stuff and to sort of say, well, what are you going to do with it? But I think that, that was it. After that, you didn't bother us at all. And we just sort of got on and I just sort of, did it really i just sort of made it up as we went along and it and it worked out for the best in the end i think i think we got a much better magazine out of it um for not having all that sort of uh well that sort of attention lavished on it by by you know suits and stuff
1: what was kind of the internal feeling you know from like you guys and you know, other team that were working on the magazines for the the n64 because um you know in terms of thinking of the most hyped video game systems of all time just seeing little sneak previews of it and hearing that they're working with like, you know, silicon graphics and it's going to be this like super computer in your living room. I mean, do you remember much about that kind of, that build up that, I mean, when I was a teenager, it felt like a hell of a long time. Obviously it was only a year or two that it got delayed, but do you remember much about that kind of interim period before it launched and the lead up to
4: it? It, Yeah, absolutely. It was, you know, it was going to be incredible, like everything, like they all are going to be incredible before they actually come out and you realise that they're just like a slight shift on. Well, I mean, you know, the N64 was a big shift from Super Famicom. Yeah, it was. It was a, it was a massive deal. And I, I was certain that, you know, if I was going to do any magazine, if I was going to do another magazine and not just sort of like flit about between all, all of the ones that already exist, if we're going to do a new magazine, I'd want to do the Nintendo one. So I was very keen to do it. And, uh, you know, I'd already paid my ridiculous sum to get a, a one straight off the Pope, you know, as soon as it came out in Tokyo. So um, I was already, you know, keen to buy, you know, get back into that import, buying imports for it again. Um, In the end, you know, N64's a magazine, like I said before, it wasn't so much of an import-focused magazine. It was a far more sort of general magazine. um, I was still sort of pushed for, you know, we should still have, you know, the odd import and the odd sort of a... I think in the end, in N64 mag, it tended to be the but a lot of of a lot of jokes, it would be like, oh, here's Will, you know, he's got the latest Mad Ma game or, you know, some nutty sort of Japanese thing that no one even knows how to play. Do you remember that (laughs) one which was the, uh, you know, where you have sort of the hoop and you have to guide it around the metal sort of track without touching the sides. Now that fairground game, I can't even remember the name of the cart now, but there was, you know, an N64 game of that and, uh, you know, I'll give up to Will, Will can do that one, you know, whatever. So it was a it was it was a different feel, but I was still really excited by it. I mean, in the end, was the N sixty four as amazing as we were led to believe? Probably not. So, um, but it still had lots of great games. It still had lots of really good games on it.
3: How much did uh, rare contribute to the N sixty four?
4: That that was a really big boost because you know it wasn't just it wasn't just oh we're just waiting for the next first party Nintendo game. We're not just waiting for the next Mario. and not just waiting for the next Zelda or Star Fox or whatever. And, you know, and we've got like a wasteland in between. Once Rare came on and really started picking up speed, then it was, it was great. You know, it was like, well, for, for a start, they're, they're in the UK. That was amazing. It wasn't even an American developer, it was someone who we could sort of pick up the phone and talk to, you know, and they were still had the same time of day as we did. And, um, you know, they, they we could just talk to them and go and visit. And then they, we, we had a really good relationship with Rare in the end. And they would send us sort of like uh, preview carts and, uh, you know, give us lots of their new renders and stuff for covers and stuff like that. We had a really good rapport. And in the end, that's probably what led directly to me working for Rare after, after you know, N64.
3: So how did you... Uh... You know, get involved with Rare. Uh, it was one of your perfect dark covers that uh, kind of yeah. It was ride. like the
4: perfect storm, really. So the thing was, like I said before, we, we we had a really good relationship with Rare. You know, we would chat to them. They would let us know what's coming up. They so would make sure that we always had you know carts, preview carts, um, all the all the stuff that we needed for to cover the games in in the mag. So I had a really good rapport with them. And um the guy who would supply us with that stuff that, you know, I would speak to him, I would email him and, you know, and say, can I, can I have this? You know, just think we could do this this render or something like that. They had a good rapport with him. And um when it came to that perfect dark one, basically what happened was normally all the rare games came with loads of promotional renders. What would happen was when they finished the game, all the artists... They would say, "Oh, just look, spend spend a week, spend two weeks, just doing loads of renders, whatever you fancy, and we'll farm them out for promotion to all the magazines." When it came to Perfect Dark, there was one, there was one three D model of her, you know, with the chrome plating on the legs and that sort of thing, which they posed up in a couple of different poses, but essentially that was it. That's all there was. And so it was like, well, you know, all the mags are going to get these. There's like three or four renders. So all the mags are going to come out with the same cover. I said, so I said, oh, you're it. I'll just draw one. And, um, so in the end, I just sort of, you know, I sort of, I took creative license and sort of fiddled about with the design. In fact, I think when I, when, when I draw it, when I drew it, I don't actually think I'd seen those renders, those final renders. Mm -hmm. I think I was basing it off of screenshots. So I sort of half made it up and, and you know, then and, but it went, seemed to go down very well. Everybody seemed to like it and it seemed to go down really well. And then a bit later on when I was, you know, about that time, I was thinking, well, you know, I've worked on magazines quite a lot now. What's going to come after N64? Is, you know, is it going to carry on for ages? I guess there'll be another Nintendo console. What should I do? And I was thinking, well, maybe, you know, I'd quite like to do more, drawing because working on n64 I, I did a lot less covers i mean i didn't do every cover like i did with superplay i drew off to you like you know in the end uh, the perfect art one and stuff um when we didn't really have anything to put on the cover i was thinking i really like to take that more i'd really like to do more illustration so i just called the guy just emailed the guy at rare and just said do you, do you use artists Do you use you know illustrators or concept artists i guess you know and he said and he said, Well, come down. Come down. Why don't you come down and visit? Say hello. We'll have a chat. So I went down there, had a chat, and lo and behold, um, Tim Tim Chris was were in, in charge of it. They had to post of the poster of that artwork we'd given up, we'd given away with a mag on the wall in their office. Oh, nice. And um they basically I think I got the job on um on the fact that they they knew that they were going to do a follow-up to, to Perfect Dark, and they thought, well, give the give this guy a go. Give him a go. See what, see what comes of it. If he can make it look like that picture, then we're onto a winner. Didn't quite turn out that way, but, you know, that's how I made the leap. You know, the cover
1: was what did it, I guess. I mean, you know, when you got to Rare, um, did you have to kind of adapt to learning, like, 3D renders? Because, I mean, how hard is it to go from, like, you know, 2D illustration to... 3D. Well, it's the it,
4: that sort of drawing, you know, drawing cover illustrations, and and, and doing concept art for a game are miles apart. And yes, at, at the beginning, it was a case. I think I was it was expected that you would, you know, go and move into 3D because when I went there, there were no concept artists at Rare when I joined. Mm. They're basically the the um, the after 3D artists did their own concept art. They did their own you know, worked out their own characters and then they built their own characters from their own sketches. So there were no concept artists. So they weren't used to working that way anyway. And then, so I think it was assumed that I was just going to move into 3D. And I did start, I had to learn how to use the programs and everything, but it was more, I w- I've always found 3D to be this sort of, it's a sort of a weird mix of art, and technology and it, it you know to be really good at it it's sort of half it's it's a it's a pain now, I have nothing but respect for anybody who's a really amazing 3D artist because it is that sort you've got that got to have that creative side and then you've also got to have that technical ability to make it work in 3D to physically construct that thing well and mm. it was just like too much hassle I just didn't want to do it so in the end I, I stayed as a 2D artist I said well, I'll just stay as a 2D artist. Which probably means that you you end up moving into more sort of you do sort of more UI sort of stuff as well. If you're just a 2D artist, but uh, yeah, it just sort of carried on. In the end, I did all the, all the UI for Perfect Dark Zero, as well as doing all the concept. Well, not like 90 of the concept part. And um, but for a while, I was the lead artist on it as well because uh, you know they just said, well you might as well be like the art director for want of a better term on it. But that was a move more into admin. It was more like mm. you go to every meeting and you oversee everybody and you make sure what they're doing is right and you end up not drawing. And I've always said, well, the reason I left was to do more drawing. So I'd rather sort of stay just doing that. So, So yeah, so, you know, in the end, it wasn't for me.
1: Well, I've heard that you might still have recurring nightmares about trying to do hair in uh, perfect dark zero. Yeah, what five, five years
4: of joanna dark's hair in perfect dark zero <laughs> i think the thing was with perfect dark zero it was when i went there i mean pd on the n64 is is a step up from goldeneye visually but it's still it's very blocky you know you're not making a photorealistic character it's you know they've got the big blocky fingers if they've got fingers at all um And it's just like a very low res texture mapped onto very square, sort of blocky figures, et cetera, whatever. Um, By the time we got to Perfect Dark Zero, initially that was on GameCube. And um, even on GameCube, it was a big step up. And you could sort of start to see where this was going to go. And it was, I always thought that rare games were better for being more stylized. That's where they really shone. They weren't photorealistic yeah. games. And I saw Perfect Dark Zero as a rare game. And I thought we should really stylize it. But as time went on, and certainly when we moved to Microsoft, the style then, it was Halo was coming. It was a leaning into that more realistic style, that photorealism. That was what everybody was striving for. I mean, you'd get sort of outliers. Do you remember a game called 13? Which was like a, a very sort of French cartoon, oh, first person shooter. Oh, yeah. But it was really styled like a comic. And you have sort of panels and people speaking speech bowls and stuff like that. And although there were outliers like that, the great majority of first person shooters on Xbox and Xbox 360 were pushing towards a photorealism. And it was something we rarely have any any experience in. So you had a lot of artists who were sort of struggling to get their skills up to that level. were really pushing to get up to that level, and we needed to. We needed that level now. And I really and and it was like we never sort of hit that right style. In the end, it fell squarely in the middle. It wasn't stylized enough, and it wasn't realistic enough. And it was it was a hard. Sometimes it was a hardcore one. I mean, it was five years that game, five years, and it was it was a you know three one. Well, Gamecube to Xbox to Xbox 360. So it was, it it could be a long, hard slog at times. Were there any other titles
3: that you worked on and uh, uh, did you enjoy them?
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, I've done stuff like, I mean, the other, funny enough, the the thing I liked, I think I've probably worked on that I've enjoyed the most at Rare was the smallest game, which was uh, Jetpack Refueled, which is sort of the update of the old Spectrum Ultimate Play the Game sort of game. And um, I, I ended up drawing all of the backgrounds and the sprites and I even animated some of the sprites and everything. And it was a very small team. It was only like four or five people. Um, and that was really enjoyable. Um, the other things tend to be those big games. They're bit, they get very big and sprawling and lots of people have lots of input. It's very hard to keep a very sort of coherent sort of tight vision on what you want to do because everybody's always sort of like saying, well, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? You know? And you're thinking, well, you know, you're further up the food chain than I am. You know, maybe I should listen to you. And really, you really really thinking, no, that's a dreadful idea. You know, you should never do that.
3: Oh, I think a lot of those kind of Xbox Live Arcade titles are really underrated. The, um, you know, some of the conversions and modern interfaces they did on them, but they did them so well, you know, and uh, it's, it's, it's a pity that uh, that service isn't around anymore, that uh, Live Arcade. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it was good.
4: It was good. Then, of course, just worked on a lot of things that just don't go anywhere, and you know they get canned here and there. I mean, we worked on a lot of the early connect stuff. That was that was interesting, and um, did stuff like the uh, the avatars That first sort of round of avatars on three sixty. We did all of that, so it was interesting stuff, but not you know. And I've done sort of bits for other games as well. I did a little tiny little bit for Star Fox Adventures, stuff like that, but nothing. Perfect Dark Zero was really the big AAA game. That was my experience of working on what was perceived to be a really big title. And it's 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 weird. It's uh you know it's I think anybody who tells you works on those sorts of games. I mean it's probably even worse now because now you have hundreds of people. Then we had well, I mean it was like forty odd people was the team. On Perfect Dark, which Perfect Dark Zero, which was a step up from the N64 titles. But um, it wasn't as massive. And now you've got sort of hundreds and hundreds of people, and people working in different, you know, countries, and sort of companies that are outsourced bits. I mean, you know, I, I've been working on sea of Thieves for the past sort of four years, and um, that has it's such a sprawling, massive team. Not just the core team at Rare, but all the different partners they work with to do different bits and pieces. You know, you couldn't possibly do it with just the core team at Rare. So it's um, I can't even imagine how... I can't even get my head around how that all manages to work. It's crazy. I suppose it's, it's the same somehow. as making a film, isn't it? It's like a movie with gazillions of people yeah. in the credits. How on earth do you manage to sort of sync all that together?
1: Yeah, there's some big project management there, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, in 2017, we got a lovely surprise when obviously the, the Super Nintendo Classic Edition came out, uh, the SNES Mini, and then in Retro Gamer magazine... We got a revival of Super Play for a a one-off special edition issue number forty-eight. So, and obviously you were involved in that as well. You did the cover for it; that looked fantastic. Um, tell us when you first heard about this and what what it felt like, kind of working on Super Play again, like two decades later.
4: Yeah, well, that just came out the blue. That came out the blue from um, from Woz, who's the sort of the art art guy at Future now he just said, you know, actually, I think it was probably Tony Mott more than more than was. T- Tony Mott, who was, obviously, he started on Superplay and um, then turned into, you know, he's been editor of Edge or editor-in-chief or different versions of that for uh, years ever since. Um, and he just, you know, I just had a mail from one day and he said, well, you know, do you fancy doing another Superplay cover? It was like, mm, what? He said, yeah, no, we're just going to do it. And was are going to make it look exactly like the old Superplay and we're going to, you know, put it in Retro Gamer. And so I did some roughs and I'm um, him a piece of old artwork for a uh, competition and did a, a picture of the subs tiger. who we torture be torturing each issue a super play if you didn't subscribe. And uh, it was really good. Uh, initially, I was going to do a lot more, but I was at that point, I think I was freelancing. And so I was doing sort of kids books and all stuff like that. And I just couldn't, I couldn't fit it in as, as ever, or as with all of these things, they all come in at the last minute. It's like, do you fancy Mm. doing this? And you think, great, it's fantastic. And they say, well, we need it next week. So, um, yeah, it would have been nice to do some more. I think I was down to do some writing and stuff in it. But uh, no, I think it came out nice. I think it went down really well as well. It was nice to do. And they always said that they would do one. What
1: did it feel like when you got hold of it in your hands? Yeah, it was bizarre. It
4: It was bizarre seeing it on the shelves in Smith's again after all those years. No, I went in Smith's and turned them all over so the Superplay bit was facing out. Nice, but it was um yeah, it was good. It's it's nice. I mean, I still get a buzz. It's still a nice buzz when you go into into a newsagent or something and you see your artwork on a magazine on the shelf. It never gets old. It's great. I mean, I just done this retro gamer cover the other month for their rare feature, and that was just you know it was really nice to have another cover on the on the newsstands. It's great. Well, what do you think of this kind of
3: like mini magazine revival we're seeing, where a lot of, uh, you know, video game fans are basically starting their own little publications and then they're becoming quite big things. And, uh, you know, s- s- some are available in the shops as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, which is you know, sort crazy. of 20,
4: 30 years ago, those would have been black and white zines, wouldn't they? You know, just photocopied, F- photocopied and, and stapled. And, yeah. and all, all the text would be typewriter text, you know. And, and that sort of thing. And now, of course, the technology is there, as it is from a lot of things, where you can make a pro-looking magazine. Um. So I think they're great. I, I, you know, I get loads of them, you know, whether they're tiny little A5 ones or sort of bigger ones or, you know, there's, there's always something interesting. I think the only, if I had to level something, better, not a criticism, but something that they can't do is that when... Certainly on N64, on Superplay as well, we're definitely on N64. We were a team and we were there every day and we sat next to each other every day. So there was, you know, the office banter and whatever, it all came over into the magazine. I mean, you know, it, it felt, people always say N64 magazine felt like a club. And that's because to us, we were a little club. You know, we were always in our same bit of the, you know, we had our office, we all went in there, we all talked and chatted and everything, and there was a lot of back and forth. And it's something that these magazines are normally done by people, sort of disparate people, spread all over the country, and maybe sometimes other countries. It's very hard to do. I mean, you can have your discords and, you know, you have your team's meetings and everything, but it's not quite the same. So what you tend to get is plan out an issue and they'll, okay we're going to write about this who's going to write about this you want to do that you can do that we need that 1500 words on whatever it is and some maybe some pictures or some ideas of so if you, need, you need to go with it someone will go away and they'll write that and then the person who lays that out doesn't hasn't talked to the person who's written it he hasn't hmm. sort of collaborated with him we used to we used to do an n for all the time we used to say you know whether it be mark green or tim or you know whatever, it's a, you know, we talk about it. You know, what do you think? How do you think it should be laid out? Should we, should we break it up? Do you want to rewrite this bit so it fits here better? What if we put a box out here? It's all very, you know, we collaborated a lot and it's something that it's very hard to do on, on something where, you know, you, you, you're not speaking to everybody all the time. So what you would tend to get in the layouts is a big watch of text and then just some pictures dotted around the outside. You don't get that sort of mix you know, you look at some of N64's reviews and things, there'd be little box-outs, there'd be maps pointing out, and then there'd be a screenshot of them, that place on the map, and then, be, oh, we'd need to write a little bit more about that. we would be always oh, a box-out for all the powers that so-and-so's got and what you can do in the game, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it'd be really nice if we had some sort of fan magazines where they could get that sort of feel as well back in it. I mean, let's not put anything Hmm. down, because I think there there are some amazing little mags out there, amazing sort of fan mags out there. They're great. But it's, um, yeah, it would be really nice to have something that really sort of maybe captured that old style. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Do you think that's right? Yeah, I I totally
1: agree with what you're saying. Yeah, I I mean, I think, you know, the whole world's kind of moving like that, isn't it, remotely? But I think there's definitely something, you know, you, you kind of, you got that impression reading the magazines that this was like a bunch of mates and that thing i mentioned before about the fact that you know you're working hard all day but then you know you, you could tell you guys went out for a pint afterwards and you know it, it's not quite the same as having a you know a team's call at like 7 p.m is it going down the local pubs a bit. it's not quite the same nice. no yeah <laughs> but there's not to, i
4: don't but want to put amazing. down those magazines because i think they're brilliant and i read them and i really yeah. enjoy them and i think they're great you know i got I can, you know there's so many of them they hard to name the law now I mean, God, we've even got yeah. Crash and Zap back now, so yeah. you know it's ridiculous. Now, who ever thought that was going to happen? I remember talking to Chris Chris Wilkins, who's you know the the, the guru of um, fusion, you know retro fusion books, and uh, he said this was years ago now, and he said he was going to do that. He said, "Oh, I'm in touch with Oli Frey and you know Roger Keane. We're going to going to do something." And I was, and then I thought, oh, you know. Are you, really, are you really going to do something? But God, blindly, it's back on the shelves. I can go to Smith's and buy yeah. Crash and
1: Zap now. And that's amazing. <laughs> it's like some alternate universe, isn't it, when you walk it's in and bizarre. see them in Smith's. Yeah, like, well, it's yeah. absolutely bizarre. <laughs> but, yeah, but incredible, of course. So uh, long may it continue. And uh, what what are you working on these days then, Will? I mean, obviously, you, know, you do some stuff in retro. You mentioned retro gamer and stuff. What, what kind of else are you doing?
4: Yeah, I mean, like I say, up until very recently, I've been working at Rare again, uh, working on c Doing lots of um, you know, sort of UIE stuff. Um, worked working a little bit on on the new one as well. Um but uh, at the moment I'm just sort of kicking my heels, just doing bits mm. and pieces as and when I want, really. I mean I'll probably end up running out of money and have to go back and do some more work for somebody at some point. But at the moment I'm just sort of try, I'm practising retirement, is what I like to call it. See what it's like.
1: It sounds like you've you've earned a bit of taking it easy for a while. No, after, m- you know, maybe. So years, oh, so I wouldn't say so. You know. <laughs> Well, I'm hoping as well that if Nintendo ever get around to releasing an N64 Mini, we might get a an yeah, an N64 yeah. Would that ever as well, happen?
4: So. I, I mean, you know, I yeah, you know, I've I've heard things. That I've I've heard rumours that you know they they found it too expensive. Basically, the controller was too complicated to to replicate and include in the bundle. And it was just like you know, it was just like too much hassle, and so that they they gave it up, they gave it up. But I mean, whether that's
1: true or not, who knows? Well, if it happens, hopefully we'll uh, see one of your covers on a real nice. N64 I mean, magazine. Know, yeah, absolutely, would be <laughs> they did
4: say you know they would do it, they would do another mini if there was an N64 yeah. mini. So that that would be that would be quite fun to get uh, get some of the gang back together as well because we had some great writers on those mags. They were you know. Everybody goes on about the covers and everything, but really that writing is the heart of, mm. of all of
1: those mags. Well, well it's been incredible to uh, chat to you over the last hour and uh, hear some of your memories as well. Thanks so much for coming on and uh, being our guest this week.
4: Uh, you're more than welcome.
0: More than welcome.